This episode is brought to you by ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company building a more fact-driven world with consumer-grade search and AI-driven analytics. Build stickier product experiences by embedding ThoughtSpot Everywhere's interactive analytics interface directly into your data app or product. No more delayed release cycles or incremental UX improvements. ThoughtSpot Everywhere's developer-friendly platform replaces static dashboards with an interactive data experience in minutes, allowing users to intuitively dig into their data and trigger actions in their favorite business apps. Learn more and try ThoughtSpot for free today by visiting thoughtspot.com slash everywhere. Hey, everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am really excited to be joined today by a person I've always wanted to get to know more. Um, His name is Rick Kelly, and he and I have kind of uh, existed in, in the same industry for a long time. I've always looked at him as somebody who's doing really cool things. And I'm so happy to have him joining us on the pod today so we can hear more about his journey and the work that he's doing. Um, for those of you who don't know Rick, he is the chief product officer at Fuel Cycle. Fuel Cycle is a market research cloud-based solution that works with Fortune 500 companies and is consistently recognized as being a leader in the business innovation space, which is one of the things that I really admire about Rick. They constantly seem to be pushing the bounds and releasing new value to their customers. Um, He spends most of his days helping deliver a tool that serves as a comprehensive intelligence gathering ecosystem that helps uh, decision makers to maintain constant connections with their customers, their prospects, and users to uncover real-world actionable intelligence. So for those of us listening to the podcast, most of us can benefit from having that type of information and knowing what to deliver to our clients and our customers. On the personal side, Rick lives in sunny Los Angeles, uh, but he has spent time in New York, India, Ireland, and across the United States while building a career that has spanned market research, academia, and technology. Rick, welcome to the pod, and are you in sunny LA today? I am fortunately in sunny Los Angeles today. Thank you for the very, very kind introduction. I think that the feeling is definitely mutual. Uh, well, very excited to have you here today and to unpack more about what you do, but also really specifically your journey. I think it's going to provide um, inspiration for a lot of our listeners today. So thanks for the, the interest in coming and sharing your story. Of course, I'd be happy to. So tell me, um, Rick, what was uh, today you're at Fuel Cycle and uh, we just talked a little bit about what Fuel Cycle does. Um, how long have you been with them and, and what was the road to, to getting started at Fuel Cycle? Yeah, so I've been at Fuel Cycle now for about uh, seven and a half, coming up on eight years. And it's been a, a very fun journey so far. When I joined, it was a much, much smaller company. And today, you know, I like to think that we're doing something that's that's pretty cool because it's, it's growing and it's, uh, you know, kind of been a very unique journey. Um, but getting here was really a fluke. It was an accident. Um, I, you know, to not to go too deeply into it, but you know, I had been living in India uh, for a few months. Uh, working at a technology start- startup, uh, seed-funded startup that was based in San Francisco. And my wife, uh, my infant son, and I moved to India uh, to work for this company, which was awesome. And while there, my son was diagnosed with a very rare bleeding disorder, and we had to come back to the U.S. Uh, very quickly. 
I came back to the U.S. very quickly uh, to get uh, treatment for my child and uh, immediately picked up another job in the market research space. And uh, it essentially crashed and burned. And uh, so I got a job, uh, signed a lease, moved into a new house. And uh, two months after I started the job, uh, I, I was let go because it was a small company. It wasn't, you know, expectations were misaligned, I think. And so I was let go. And the, uh, the, first, uh, the first person I emailed, um, even before I told my wife that I'd been let go, was a colleague that was working at FuelCycle. And I emailed him and said, hey, what are you up to? And he said, hey, you want to talk to the team here? And that's how I joined Fuel Cycle. It was really a disaster, a series of disasters that led to me being uh, at this organization. Wow. And that the year was 2012, 2013. Do I have that right? Yeah. So it was kind of 2013, early 2014. Yeah. Okay. So. I have to say, I mean, the series of both personal and professional events that you just listed off sound like they could leave a lot of people <laughs> feeling less than motivated and less than um, empowered to go out and find that next opportunity. Did you find yourself, you know, at, at kind of that feeling of rock bottom or did you not have that option since you had a infant son who needed your support and a wife who needed your support? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I definitely think there were moments and feelings of uh, desperation and, and uh, you know, real concern, but mostly it was, I had to keep going, right? Is I had to find something, I had to do something new and I was willing to do just about anything to make sure that they had the support that they needed. But it was definitely, it was a, it was a bouncy, uh, bouncy couple of years, um, a lot of painful lessons and everything. Uh, emotionally, it was, I think it was hard you know, if I look back, I would say, yeah, there was very intense uh, depression, but mostly I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep moving along uh, to, to help my family, but also to help an organization that was growing. And I got to do something that, you know, got to do work that I thought was really cool. And so that was definitely motivating. It was a unique experience. Well, hopefully later today, we can hear a few of those lessons that other people might be able to learn from. Um, but I, I think what would be great is actually to take a step back and understand, you know, who was Rick leading up to that trip to India, right? I mean, it's an amazing opportunity. It sounds like that startup allowed you to have to relocate to a completely different country and, um, you know, to take your family there. That's amazing. Were you in product at that time? Like how, what was your journey up until this point? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So the answer is not at all. Like breaking in a product was something I wanted to do for a long time. But I, I finished uh, grad school uh, right at the tail end of the financial crisis. And uh, despite having like pretty strong academic record, it was almost impossible to get a job. Um, it was very challenging. There was a lot of hiring. And uh, so I decided that I was going to go, you know, take a, take a break from academia before I went to pursue a PhD and just go work for a couple of years and see what I could do. Um, I ended up getting a job about a week before graduation that was in market research. It was a data collection company and I was very fortunate to get that. So I up and moved very quickly and uh, worked in uh, data collection on the market research side for a couple of years. And then, um, you know, I'd always wanted to, to teach. I thought I would, you know, would, I mentioned I wanted to go get a PhD, which uh, never ended up happening. But uh, so I decided to go teach. I got an offer to teach at a university teach political science. Um, and so I taught political science for a year. And uh, it took me about three weeks of teaching to realize that I did not want to teach. I was so bored. It was, 
you know, it was, it was, it was very, it was very challenging because it was, I was just really bored of living, doing the same routine day in, day out. And so I started uh, writing and trying to get, you know, break into technology. Um, you know, this is uh, 2012 or so when it really just felt like, you know, Silicon Valley was leaving the rest of the world behind and you either had to be there or you couldn't. And, and uh, so I worked really hard to get noticed and to, you know, try and meet people, uh, you know, published, uh, I think, a couple op-eds in uh, TechCrunch, which was pretty cool, but uh, still nothing happened. And then finally, an old college roommate called me and said, hey, I'm starting a company. Uh, would you be interested in moving to India? And I said yes within about five minutes of getting that call. Um, and that's how I got to India. Is so, that, is that um, that willingness to take a risk and to, I mean, to jump and jump into a whole new world. Is that something that's characteristic of you still to this day? I mean, it's a, it's a brave thing, you know, not everybody who got that call would have said, yes, I'm curious about your personality and has that remained um, throughout your career and life? Yeah, I think there's, there's a, when the, when the, yes. So the short answer is yes. I've, I've made a lot of big decisions very quickly um, that were just like aligned with like what I wanted to do with value. So I spent a lot of time uh, kind of aligning like values and what I intend to do. And then that way, when opportunity presents itself, I don't have to think too much about it. It's just make a quick, quick decision. And uh, I think it serves us well, or serves me well um, in a product organization as well. Absolutely. I can see that for sure. It's important to understand why you're doing what you're doing to help keep, keep uh, clarity through the chaos that can be uh, life and product. So for, for people who are listening and maybe want to hear how you became clear about what mattered to you and how you stayed true to that, any advice? You know, I, I think uh, I formalize some of my thinking. Um, so I, I think a lot and I try and write down what my values are and to reimagine, like, you know, revisit those on a, on a semi-regular cadence. So, uh, you know, so I, I have a set of notes where I kind of outline uh, goals. It's not anything that's like very, like a strong, I have to do this or else. It's more about the type of life I want to live. And uh, so if I feel aligned with those goals, and usually I feel pretty content if those values are, you know, I, I would say that it's just a matter of knowing what you want, formalizing what you want, and then revisiting it on a regular cadence. Perfect. So since uh, then entering fuel cycle, you mentioned, you know, market research. But one of the things I think that would be good for our listeners is to break down what do we really mean by market research? I think a lot of people hear it and they're thinking like either something like a Nielsen, like, you know, or they're thinking maybe survey monkey. I mean, how do you explain the problem that you solve every day? Yeah. Well, so the problem that we're solving, every business is, lives in a sea of constant change. Like the, the rate of change and the, the acceleration of change and consumer empowerment, it's uh, it, it's crazier today than it's ever been. We're pretty much in the most dynamic business environment um, that's ever existed. And so for companies to be successful, they really have to stay tuned to what their customers need and want because it can change rapidly. There's new brands, new market entrants. There's more uh, private equity, venture money flowing than ever before, which means that you know, the, the companies that were founded 14 years ago are already at threat of disruption by another, you know, company. And so, um, you know, really staying in touch with customers is the most important thing. 
And so our platform helps businesses maintain constant connection to like their customers, like the prospects and also their product users and make sure that they can focus on innovation, on marketing messaging, on usability, uh, shopper insights, you know, path to purchase and do that in a very cohesive, easy to use platform. So we actually do a ton of integrations. So you mentioned like SurveyMonkey, we have integrations with SurveyMonkey, with Qualtrics, with you know, um, other partner platforms like Medallia as well, that kind of help businesses orchestrate the market research process to collect both structured and unstructured data to build uh, new solutions and to create new marketing messages and things that resonate. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very much an enterprise oriented platform, um, but there's a lot of, you know, a lot of real pressures to stay in touch with customer needs. Absolutely. And is, I mean, if you think back to the early days at fuel cycle versus now, how has your mindset on product changed, if at all? So I, I think there's a thread that kind of goes throughout the whole thing. So I didn't start at, in product at fuel cycle. I've been doing a, a product role for probably four or five years now. Um, prior to that, and I actually headed up like our uh, client services group. So pro, like professional services, customer success, and uh, the number one thing I, I think that matters for product leadership and product managers in general is to be attuned to customer needs. It's really like you have to know the pain point that you're solving and what it is uh, and understand you know, w- you know, what they need uh, to be successful. And I think that thread is something we try to constantly focus on is to, to stay tuned stay attuned to customer needs and to develop solutions around those. Have there been, uh, have there been points in your, in your journey where you guys have listened to customer needs and the solution that has been dis- delivered has been unsuccessful? <laughs> Always. Absolutely. Uh, so look, uh, I, I think one of the things that I'm continuously or can continually learn is that no matter what we build, it's going to, it's, it's going to, the first iteration is going to be wrong, right? And I really think that the rate of iteration and the kind of rate of execution is ultimately like what matters as long as you are tuned to customer needs and are listen, able to listen to feedback. So uh, listening to feedback, uh, you know, building that, the, in, you know, building that into your product, making a customer as part of the co-creation journey. Uh, I think is is vitally important to actually delivering what what people need. So the the aphorism that you should, if you're not embarrassed of something that you've shipped, you've shipped too late. I think there's truth to that, and it's not because it's it's not because you want to ship bad products. It's because you actually have to learn, and you can't learn from you know just prototypes and you know and things like that. You actually have to deliver something and and see how it's used and find the gaps when it once it gets to scale. Absolutely. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. They, they, especially, I think in the last few years, there's been an increasing um, level of attention paid to the importance of product discovery. And one of the things that I talk with teams a lot and hear a lot is they feel like they get stuck in product discovery. How do they, how do they test those assumptions um, if they're always waiting on customer feedback or if they're always waiting on, you know, um, uh, you know, data that takes longer to be able to get to you without just going live, right? And being able to actually collect that feedback. Uh, how has FuelCycle kind of tried to straddle the need to, as you say, 
be thoughtful about what you're releasing, staying attuned to the customer need, but also getting product into the hands of customers, users, especially when you're in an enterprise uh, environment, which it's not as easy as just going live for a bunch of, you know, direct to consumer things. What, what have you guys done? Yeah, so I don't know that we always have the perfect answer. Um, I do know that, uh, you know, uh, having a lean team, and it's been lean for a long time, and I love, I love like lean product and engineering or organizations, largely because they, uh, it forces prioritization. So you have to figure out what the most important thing is. And so I, I think the KPIs and like objectives you set for teams are also extremely important. So, you know, for, for me, the thing I was responsible for, for the first few years of like the product development, uh, or first few, first few years of running product was to increase our average, uh, contract value. And there was a lofty target and it took, you know, three years to get it to where we wanted it to be, but that was like the objective. And that meant that we had to build more value into the product product. We had to build more solutions in there and really, um, you know, that kind of clear prioritization for me meant that I could turn around and make clear priorities around, you know, does it move the needle on this objective? Yes or no. If not, then we're not going to do it. Are there any uh, particular memories you have of really chasing after that objective and, and having an unexpected outcome that others can learn from? Oh, you know, there's, there's so many, so many lessons. I don't know that there's always like expected or unexpected outcomes, right? It's, it's, uh, uh, it, I would say it, it took, it's taken a lot of work. It's a lot of effort, right? And being kind of single-mindedly focused on that uh, has been challenging, but really like, um, you know, it, it also requires a lot of collaboration with uh, sales teams, especially like in an inter enterprise sales motion, you have to help them sell the product. You have to listen to their feedback, right? And so I think collaboration with, with stakeholders is probably like one of the most important things is that especially like you mentioned, you can't just like ship something out to tens of thousands of consumers in an enterprise motion. You have to work with a lot of people. You have to collaborate. You can't just, uh, you know, say, Hey, we're, we're shipping this and that's it. Uh, there's change management. There's a process. It, I think that's one of the things that I, I learned or I, I learned the most is to collaborate more effectively with the uh, stakeholders, especially like internal stakeholders that I have um, over the past few years. So my apologies to all the sales leaders and everything I've worked with over the years, especially uh, several years ago. So how, uh, I'm sure there's no apologies needed, but uh, how, how are you guys set up today? How do you set up the organization so that you are able to collaborate and coexist with those really important other functions within the business? Yeah, so the product organization at Fuel Cycle has uh, product management, also product marketing, and then a solutions team, so like solutions engineering uh, for like integrations and last mile automation efforts. Um, and so those, the solutions team works very like closely with, um, you know, with customer success and with sales for, uh, you know, new opportunities and also existing customers. So they have to collaborate. It's a professional service. They're building things together and kind of co-creating. And then within the product marketing function, that really kind of drives like the, the go-to-market motion for our team. So it means you have to collaborate, you know, with the, the, the product management team, they have to collaborate with sales, with finance and pricing. So it's kind of centralizing that whole process and uh, maintaining like a regular cadence of communication and collaboration. Um, 
you know, it, I think the main thing is you know, providing a lot of transparency into process and, you know, what's happening when and what priorities are set. And especially when there's problems, you know, there's not everything's perfect. And so just trying to, to build trust across the organization, I'd say is the most important thing. Are there experiments with, with it comes to organizational design that you've tried that just haven't worked? And, you know, if so, any lessons for other people thinking about the best way to set up their teams? Yeah, so we don't run a lot of experiments on organizational design. Um, so fuel cycle if, is actually, uh, it's, uh, we, we haven't taken any like funding. So it's always been a like profitable, like bootstrap business and which has been a lot of work. So a lot of like organizational design is, uh, you know, uh, what works and how can we deliver? Uh, so there's not a lot of time for organizational experiments. It's just whatever is gonna make the most sense, you know, for this year, for next year. And I would say that, you know, for, for me, uh, for a long time, I managed both product, I managed like our professional services and customer success um, as well. And uh, as we've grown, I found, you know, we found people that are going to be really great specialists in those areas and probably be better at those areas than I have. And so it's been able to uh, hand off other functions to people that are really great at, uh, at what they do. And uh, so letting go of some of the, the head, you know, like not being responsible for all the head count um, has been important to me as well. Yeah, I've noticed a, a trend in, in observing you and talking to you that, you know, you really appreciate kind of the ability to delegate, but also the ability to be self-taught, right? Um, and to allow people to, to kind of come into their own potential um, as they go, talk to, talk to us a little bit about why that's been so important for you. Yeah. So I've had zero, uh, professional training or mentorship on product management. Um, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't work for a product leader before I became responsible for, for product. And I, th I think that's important because one of the things that I think a lot of people get concerned about is is how to get into product. Product is a very exciting role. And so it's a function that people want to get into. And uh, for me, it was really, it's podcasts like this that help me understand how to be uh, you know, a product leader and then just repeated like good decisions. Um, not always good decisions, repeated le learning quickly maybe. But uh, I, I think the idea is, is that, um, you know, uh, the, the fundamental question for product is how do you take customer needs and how do you translate that to software that, you, that developers can build? And so understanding customers, understanding what the needs are, and being able, able to articulate that in a way that uh, developers or designers can take and implement uh, is like the main thing. And so if you can stay really close to customers or users or whomever your you know, kind of key audience is, that's going to be the most important thing is to make sure that you understand those understand what's most important, what's nice to have, what's not critical, uh, what's absolutely critical and going to make a difference and deliver that to, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to your users. I think that'll help you be successful. It, you don't have to have a ton of formal training to be successful as a product manager. You just need to get going and start trying. And I was like really annoying probably 10 years ago because I was I wanted to be in product and I just so I was constantly pitching ideas and nobody listened to them. And I was probably super annoying because I had a hundred ideas and I wanted to share them and I wanted to, to implement them. And most of them get shot down. 
And I think just knowing that, you know, sometimes you have to keep pitching and keep pushing and that, and be willing to work on things that may not go anywhere. Um, I think that's been the difference for me is like, I've, I've been willing to take early morning meetings or to work on a, you know, design something or mock something up over a weekend, uh, even when I wasn't in product, but, you know, with the full knowledge that it probably wouldn't go anywhere um, and just willing to take those, take those risks. Absolutely. To, to find the opportunity to find the win, right? I think you have to have incredible resilience if you are going to go into product because there is just such a low likelihood that you're going to have a high success rate of the things that you try to deliver and them working. And that's almost like you just need to know that about the rules of the game. Yep. It's, it's like, uh, I don't know if everybody follows or listens to like baseball, but like it's, it's going for home runs. Right. And that, if you look at like Babe Ruth, it was a lot of strikeouts and then some big swings and big home runs. And I think that's the way to think about it is there's a lot of things that aren't going to work. Um, but you have to do them anyways and not, uh, and, and not, not be sad about that. I love it. I have yet to have anyone tell us what we can learn about product from Babe Ruth. So that's the first I'm excited. So, uh, so one question I've always been curious about with fuel cycle, you guys did something really interesting in my opinion, in the space. So there was, um, for those geeks who were in this CX kind of consumer insights, consumer experience, customer experience space, um, there wasn't always a willingness to integrate with multiple providers, right? There was a long time where people kind of thought, look, you build it yourself, right? And still to this day, I think a lot of people have um, real informed reasons for why when it looks at buy, build, partner, they feel very strongly if you're not building, like why, why bother, right? However, I always thought of you guys, and I don't know if this you would agree with this, but as being kind of a leader when it came into, well, why not plug into multiple things that people are using and become the kind of workspace opportunity. Um, how did that decision come about? Because it has different, obviously, considerations for strategy and for USP. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you guys made that choice and how it's how it's worked for you? Yeah. So, the, I mean, it's worked really, really well. And I think it's one of the like purchase decision drivers for our customers is the, the integration approach. So I'll start there by saying, um, it was, uh, it's been successful and it's been great now. So we, we treat our product as a platform, which means we have a bunch of APIs exposed to developers who can integrate their solutions, you know, with fuel cycle and, uh, you know, sync data, you know, across different solutions. So whether it's fuel cycle to Qualtrics and vice versa, or it's like a very like niche, like point research solution. And as a result. Uh, what we're able to offer to our customers is a cohesive platform to do just about any type of market research or user research that you need to do. Now, it, it started off much smaller than that. And I think it uh, uh, really, I give a lot of credit to our CEO, uh, Aran Gilad, who uh, he, he and I were actually, we, we both remember this conversation very well because we were both having coffee in our, in our kitchen in the office and talking with each other about, you know, customer needs and, you know, what we can do and opportunities. And it was one of those things where I think we both, both realized, and again, I want to credit Iran in this, where uh, to meet customer needs that, especially as a company that was going to be this bootstrap, that we were never going to be able to build every solution ourselves, but that 
we didn't have to, and that we could partner with uh, other companies to, you know, to deliver a cohesive sol solution. And so for us, it was really inducing partners with the, uh, you know, promises of, of revenue and new customer opportunities and kind of building that, that network that has turned out uh, tremendously well. Um, so today, 100% of fuel cycle customers use two or more integrations. Um, and then, you know, over half last year uh, used four or more. And then there's like another 20% that, have, you know, tried out eight different integrations with, with fuel cycle. And those are all, you know, it helps them do a very wide range of research. And, um, you know, it, it started with 10 companies and it was really, we, we shipped it very quickly. So essentially we had a conversation and six weeks later, I think it was six weeks later is when we delivered like the first um, that we, we announced the uh, partner program. And <clears throat> so it was, it was uh, just, I think there was three endpoints that allowed for a very lightweight integration uh, with our platform. We big borrowed, steal, stole, like whatever it took to get uh, 10 partners to launch with us. And we launched with 10 integrations uh, to start. And uh, now it's, uh, you know, kind of getting closer to 50. And it's a big, important part of our platform now. Huge, absolutely. Was there ever a point where anybody doubted the strategy internally, um, or was it pretty widely accepted based on it coming from such senior people within the organization? Oh no, everybody doubted it. Um, <laughs> everybody thought it was crazy, uh, you know, and that's okay. Like, uh, there's lots of things that are crazy, and there's lots of things that don't work, but. Uh, Again, this is a stakeholder management and just uh, you know making strategic commitments and following through on them. How often? Uh, how often would you say the things that people thought were crazy internally have actually ended up being right on? Is it a Babe Ruth? Uh, is it another Babe Ruth kind of analogy? Just you know, very few or? Yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, I, I think that um, yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of it changes hard, right? And to be in product, you have to be willing to live in the future by a few months or a few years and kind of you're, you're building for the future. And uh, I think that's really what it is, is you just have to, you know, understand that not everybody is going to feel as excited about something as you are. And uh, everything starts small. I think one of the things I've underappreciated is how small uh, products and services can start and how much how long it can take them to grow. Cause I would love to have like breakout solutions that were instant hits overnight. Um, but really I have yet to see one of those happen in my career. Sometimes it takes two, three years before something really becomes uh, central and a, a, you know, kind of mature product or solution that, that people love. Absolutely. Yes. I think that's super important for those of us who've been in the trenches. No, it can take a lot, um, a lot longer than we'd like to see the immediate signs of success. But when you, when you have repeat experience, I think one of the things you get good at is actually spotting the signals that this is going to be successful. Would you agree? Like, uh, have you honed that kind of antenna over the years of like, look, this, this is early days, but this is what tells me this has a high likelihood of success. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like one of the, one of the things that I love now is just how much data and information we can get back uh, into the product team. So we obviously have product analytics. Uh, we, we use uh, our own research tools to do research with our user base as well. Um, but then in addition, there's solutions like, uh, like uh, Gong, 
which are like, you know, call recordings so we can hear, you know, what customers and what prospects are saying about our product. And so we set up keywords that, you know, uh, that feed into a Slack channel. And so, you know, I can run through and see every single, you know, comment or mention about a new feature or a new solution, something like that uh, at the end of the day and know kind of what the sentiment is and what people are excited about and what people just don't understand and where we need to reposition uh, like new capabilities as well. Absolutely. I was going to ask you if you dog food at all. So it sounds like you guys do use your own platform to run research and understand what they want. Um, it's it's so great to hear that because I think so often people say that they have ambitions to do that, but then actually when push comes to shove, they don't. So was that something that came naturally to you guys or was it something you had to be intentional about? Uh, I would say as we've grown, it, we've had to be more intentional about it. Um, so it was a very natural thing, especially when our user base was small. I probably knew, you know, uh, every single user, I probably knew what their dog ate for breakfast and what their birthday was. And so it was easier to kind of coalesce all the information. And as we've grown and the user base is dramatically bigger, uh, we have to be uh, much more intentional about the process. Awesome. So, uh, Rick, I have a question for you uh, that goes into if you guys are serving as kind of this ecosystem player that helps people understand and inform decisions um, and are using that as their toolkit a lot. It's super important to have um, diverse ideas that are coming in and what should be in that toolkit, right? And one of the things that I think uh, we've both seen over the last few years is this rise in the concept of inclusive product or diversity of thought and infusing kind of diverse thinking into the product development process. Um, and I would think that the product that you work on, the platform you work on, that's even more important because you're kind of introducing like a set of tools to give to somebody to make decisions on. Do you guys think much about it at Fuel Cycle? Does it play uh, any kind of um, specific role in the process of how you do deliver new solutions or bring value to the market? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So it's an important question. Um, I, th I think one of the things that is very fortunate is that uh, the team that I've worked with for a long time, it's a very naturally uh, uh, in inclusive team and diverse team. Um, I think within like our leadership team, I, I think that I'm the only uh, white male, for instance. And so like the, the team itself has been uh, diverse for a long time. And in order to build a great product, you really have to care about users and your user base is going to come from everywhere. And so we have, uh, you know, a broad set of people on our product team that are very, uh, you know, passionate about diversity and inclusion and hearing from, you know, broader set of people. And so, you know, like what we want to do is make sure that we're building a solution that everybody can use that allows for data to be captured and to be responsibly used where, wherever possible. And that means that uh, we have to hear from a broad spectrum of people uh, and incorporate that into our solutions. That's excellent. Do you guys use, um, like when it comes to thinking about testing frameworks or, um, you know, release testing, how do you guys go about trying to make sure that you build that diverse perspective in, um, if at all? Because I know it's difficult, so. Yeah, I think it's very difficult. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a challenge and it's something that has to be, again, it has to be formalized as, as you grow. Um, so broader set of users requires a broader set of testing. 
And so utilizing solutions that allow you to, to do more user testing uh, pre-release um, with a broader set and broader audience is, is paramount. Absolutely. I, I agree. I think the most important thing is actually building that into the process, right? Being intentional about saying, how are we going to make sure that we have a diverse set of users here? How are we testing for accessibility here? How are we, you know, making sure that we've got multiple points of view from a location basis, et cetera, um, and really, and really focusing in that area. So, um, well, if you, uh, if you took a step back now, because I'm just thinking you've had quite the journey, um, if you took a step back and you were to talk to the Rick and Rick's family, who was, you know, heading off to India um, at that point, what do you think you would tell your your younger self um, about the the next fifteen years that they they were going to experience? Fifteen years. Uh, yeah, I would just say just keep going. Like it's uh, learn to enjoy the grind. Um, you know, I I think uh, I'm. I'm it's amazing for everybody. Like everybody's got something going on in their life. There's some pain, uh, some challenge in everybody's life, no matter who you meet, uh, there's something going on. So I think, you know, being kind and also learning to embrace the fact that life is usually a grind punctuated by, you know, extremely happy or very challenging moments and, uh, enjoy the grind. That's it. And, uh, I, that's a, that's a phrase I, I, I saw several years ago from uh, somebody on LinkedIn who I really respect. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that really, that really is what it is. It's, and I try to share that with, you know, my friends and family member and colleagues too, is just enjoy the grind because it doesn't get easier, whether you're an executive or whether you're an intern, there's always something painful. There's always something challenging and uh, that's just life. I love it. Would you give any specific different advice to someone who wants to become a chief product officer? Um, or would you say the same advice applies? Anything more tailored for that, that desire to reach your current level? Yeah, I, I think that's really a matter of like values, right? And knowing what you value. Um, lots of people want to be leaders, but you have to put in an extraordinary amount of work to be successful. And uh, so I'm pro, you know, work-life balance and pro all those things, but it's really about people knowing what they want, because if you live your life in a way that's not consistent with your values, then you're going to be very frustrated and sad. But for me, I don't mind working a lot because it's consistent with my values. And I understand that it's not, that's not the case for everyone. And that's okay. Um, you just know what you want. And if you want to be a chief product officer, you have to put in the effort and to work like a chief product officer. Yep. Show up as a CPO for years before you get the job, because it's going to exactly. take, take that practice, if nothing else, to understand whether you really want it, but also to get the chance to do it, I think. So, Rick, it's been so nice to have you today. Um, I'm going to ask you my, my favorite question that I always say for the end of the show. Uh, so there is, pretend, a museum in the world dedicated to the most important product uh, products out there, things that we can learn from, things that we should celebrate. Um, what do you think should be in the museum and why? So this is a good question. Um, I uh, So I grew up on a farm in Central California. So I'm going to say a plow because I think number one, a plow is really, it changed uh, the farming practices and allowed people to, to specialize uh, you know, millennia ago. Um, more recently, I'm going to say uh, electric electrical generators. Uh, which uh, I, I think kind of spawned the second industrial revolution and gave rise to like life as we know it today. 
And uh, third, I'm going to say the integrated circuit, uh, which was invented, you know, 19 or the 1920s probably, uh, and gives rise to computers and smartphones and everything. Um, funnily enough, I, I found this out uh, reading a few, probably a few months ago, that the integrated circuit was actually developed. I'm not sure if this is entirely apocryphal or not, so I'll, I'll caveat that before I say it. It was developed as a way to circum circumvent tax laws in Germany for uh, transistors because, uh, you know, companies were taxed on the number of, you know, uh, I, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was, it was a tax uh, circumvention scheme. And that's how the early integrated circuit was, was developed. I didn't know that. And that's funny with, uh, at the time that we were recording this, there has just been an agreement amongst uh, uh, nations that there will be a new 15% minimum tax rate. So uh, yeah. for people who are trying to avoid uh, tax. <laughs> so we'll integrated see, circuits. We'll <laughs> yeah, we'll see yeah. what happens. Um, it's been such a pleasure having you on the pod today, Rook. Thanks for sharing your journey. I think it's inspiring, certainly to me, and I think it will be to many listeners out there. So thanks for taking us uh, on your tour of the grind. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the product-led alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.